There's this food I'm thinking of whose reputation encapsulates a certain romantic notion of the South. Rustic and wholesome, tied deeply in our minds to the place it's from. It is an onion. They've got images of uh, Clark Gable from Gone with the Wind, you know, like with an onion instead of his sweetheart in his hands. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, the Vidalia onion, a vegetable with a brand identity that far exceeds most agricultural products. It's even protected by law. This is a story that, like the onion itself, has far more layers than one might expect from the outside. This deeply local Georgia product actually tells us a lot about globalization. To help me tell this story, here's Gravy's intern, Tyler Pratt. Hey, Tyler. Hey. So Tyler is the one who brought Vidalias up because you'd heard that people were crazy about them, right? Yeah, like when you think of foods people are passionate about, maybe onions aren't on the top of that list. But Vidalias seem to inspire an almost cult-like adoration. The sweetness is unbelievable. The onions are so sweet that you can actually eat them like an apple. I can't imagine life without them. I think I remember, like, you know, around eight or nine, being aware of food enough to, like, notice that these were different than regular onions. And I think I was attracted to the name, too, because it's really pretty. Vidalia. Just in general, if I have a shirt that says Vidalia onions on it, I see them, you know, at an airport. They're, they love it. They'll tell a story of how they first started eating them, you know, what their favorite recipe is. I imagine Vidalia to be this, this mythical place. It's about an hour away from my hometown in Savannah. And I imagine that certain times of year, the soil is just sown with molasses. I don't know, it's just good. Even the Vidalia's biggest fans have this association with place. How did this one kind of onion get so associated with Georgia? And how did it get to be so popular, beloved all over the country? Before we get much further, we should explain something about onions. They can be either hot or sweet. When an onion is sweet, it doesn't mean that there's actually more sugar in it. That's Tori Olson. It means two things. It means that there's less sulfur in the onion, and it means that there's a higher water content in the onion. Tori's an assistant professor of history at the University of Tennessee, a job that doesn't immediately make you think onions. But Tori wrote a paper about Vidalias that dug into the surprising past and contradictions of this onion industry. And he's going to be our partner in telling this story. The things Tori mentioned that help make for a sweet onion, less sulfur, more water, they're what make a certain part of Georgia ideal for growing it. The soil content of the southeastern coastal plain and the rainfall and the sort of climate of the region was conducive to producing a sweeter rather than a hotter onion. But this kind of onion wasn't always grown in Georgia. As the story goes, no one really planted onions in Georgia until the 1920s, 1930s or so. Like all heroes, the Vidalia has its own origin myth. And as local legend goes, this one South Georgia farmer experimented by taking a Texas onion seed and planting it in the soil of the southeastern coastal plain of Georgia and was stunned when the onion came out not tasting hot, <laughs> inducing tears or anything like that, but tasting sweeter and tasting juicier and much more sort of a palatable onion than most onions that many Americans were familiar with. And that discovery came at a fortuitous time. The cotton industry in the South was in decline, at the same time as the Depression was worsening. Farmers in South Georgia were looking for a new crop as a potential savior. 
What's fascinating is that even though, you know, according to local lore, these farmers begin planting onions, it's such a small thing. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a, maybe 100 acres or something. For most of the 20th century, you could only get a Georgia sweet onion if you happen to live in or visit this specific area. If you wanted a South Georgia sweet onion, you had to drive down there and get it, basically, right? You might be able to get it at a Piggly Wiggly in southeastern Georgia, but the only other time you would get it is if you're driving through and you see farmers selling this on the side of the road. That is until the 1980s, when more farmers got into the onion business, including a certain farmer named Delbert Bland. I was born in Reesville, Georgia, which is not but seven miles from here. I hadn't been very far, so... Uh, I grew up on this farm where we're at now and actually didn't start growing onions until we planted five acres in 1982. And five acres is probably not, uh, is about half the size of this packing shed. Delbert Bland is somewhere around 60, tall with a head of gray hair. He's a jeans and boots kind of guy with his shirt sleeves rolled up just above a gold Rolex. He likes to keep a dip in. And with that deep Georgia drawl, he paints the picture of a classic country boss. When Delbert was growing up, his father grew corn, soybeans, a little tobacco, and they raised hogs. His dad talked Delbert into staying on the farm. It was Delbert's idea to get into onions. I got tired of chasing pigs. <laughs> to be honest with you, I was wanting to see the world and get out and get somewhere besides Reedsville. I like home, but I don't want to stay there all the time, so... I've seen an opportunity to be growing a commodity and the sky's the limit. You can go out and do as much as you want to do with it. And so I like the aspect of being able to market the product that we grew. And Delbert turned out to be one heck of a marketing genius. This here is uh, an ad that my son that is 37 years old now, when he was three years old, I run this ad in the back of Southern Living. It's got a picture of him sitting down and eating an onion. The story goes that back in the early 1980s, Delbert put a little ad in the magazine offering 10 pounds of onions by mail for $12.95. And my father, he just went off the deep end because he was a true farmer and he cared nothing about dealing with business. I called a lady to cancel it and she said it's too late, it's already gone to press. And show you how things work, we got a thousand orders off of that one little old two by four inch ad in the back of that magazine. So I sold a thousand 10 pound bags for $12,095. And I didn't even ask my father next year, I just took out five ads. Delbert decided to take it to the next level. And I'll never forget, I guess I was around 25, 26 years old. I borrowed my mother's car and got my buddy to ride with me that grew up on the farm here with me. And I drove from here to Chicago and back down through Pittsburgh, back down through the East Coast to Georgia over seven days. He'd drive into a city and head straight to the warehouse where they bought onions or the grocery store itself. And I'd walk in the door and tell them, my name's Delbert Bland, I'm from Reedsville, Georgia. You might not can understand me the way I talk, but I got something you need. These are some very, very good onions. Delbert would not accept defeat. He remembers fondly even the instances when he wasn't let into offices without an appointment. 
Like this one time when he basically did a stakeout by an onion buyer's car. It was almost lunchtime, so I just hung out in the parking lot waiting on this guy to come get in his car. And when he did, I stopped him. I told him who I was, and I wanted to sell him some onions. And believe it or not, that's how I started. And the stores bought it. In fact, they lapped it up. I think that when they seen me, a country boy come to town, can't have talk. I think they were so curious that they were just thinking, that, what is this all about? There's something about Delbert's representation of himself, a Southern boy who talks funny but knows his onions, that's in keeping with the way they were being marketed in general. Tori Olson spent a bunch of time digging through old advertisements for the onions. They're all sort of playing on this image of this South, this romantic rural South that's fundamentally different from, you know, industrial, urban Boston or New York or something like this. Uh, They've got images of uh, Clark Gable from Gone with the Wind, you know, like with an onion instead of his sweetheart in his hands. They're talking about the sweet, rich soil of Georgia. Tori says that this moment in the 1980s was also one in which the nation was, to some degree, revising its image of the South. This is after the civil rights movement. This is after the Klan and George Wallace are, are coming to mind for most of, you know, for Americans who live outside of the South as to what defines the region. And there's this sort of, you know, somewhat whitewashed, romantic, the kind of Southern living image of the American South that these Vidalia growers are absolutely latching onto and trying to sell, you know, as a sort of slow, old-fashioned, old-time, homey alternative to the industrial city in the United States. And it worked. Delbert went from selling 10,000 pounds of onions to, say, one Chicago grocery store chain one year to 140,000 pounds the next. The onion business was growing exponentially. There was just one problem. The very thing that made the onion special, its sweet flavor, was also working to prevent it from being a bigger business. Remember, that sweetness comes from a low sulfur content and a high water content. Well, it turns out sulfur is a natural preservative. And water makes something rot a lot easier. So compared to the hot onion, right, the onion that more people are familiar with, the sweet onion is a more difficult biological commodity to store and to ship because it bruises easily, it rots easily. All of the sort of things that make it special also make it very difficult to to transform into something that can be shipped a thousand miles or, you know, stored for extended periods of time. So here were a bunch of farmers like Delbert Bland who'd gone to all this trouble to get people to fall in love with their sweet onions. And then they could only sell them for a few months of the year, the time right after they'd been harvested. Something had to be done. Here's the, uh, I guess, the creme de la creme in terms of onion research. Uh, this is the onion variety trial. And so where we have That's Cliff Reiner. He's driving me on a golf cart around several acres of little green onion sprouts. They look kind of like sparse grass. Cliff's a big guy, built like a linebacker, who knows just about everything about Vidalia onions. He works at the Vidalia Onion and Vegetable Research Center, which is part of the University of Georgia and an ag extension for the USDA. The biggest reason we're successful and we can kind of constantly lead the sweet onion category is our soils. So our soils are really the bread and butter. The soils, yes. It was before Cliff's time that the onion farmers turned to the ag extension with their problems of storing sweet onions. But he knows the story. Mr. Dole Smittle done all the, the background work. He'd 
come up here and get onions and carry them back and do actually small research in, in sealed five-gallon buckets. He was experimenting with something that apple farmers in the Pacific Northwest had come up with, controlled atmosphere storage. Basically keeping oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide, as well as temperature and humidity, at just the right levels so that the fruit wouldn't spoil. And he finally got his recipe, and just in a short period of time after he kind of got it nailed down, there was one, one or two guys that started, and then all of a sudden they put up enough uh, CA rooms, controlled atmospheric rooms, to really double their volume and then keep onions all through the summer. These huge high-tech refrigerators were a game changer. Now they could sell onions much farther afield and for a longer amount of time. Onion sales grew and grew, based in large part on being marketed as this authentic Southern product. So you have multi-million dollar, state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, controlled atmosphere warehouses, right, which are now beginning to dot the countryside in southeastern Georgia and are completely at odds with the image of the rural, slow, old-fashioned, backward, uh, you know, rural south that they're, they're explicitly marketing their crop through, right? So it's this real contradiction of sorts. Coming up, the ironies continue, a law that says what is and is not a Vidalia onion and how Latin America gets added to the mix. That's ahead. There is that donor music. At White Oak Pastures, Will Harris and his team raise grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, and pastured eggs, among other things. They farm their land near Bluffton, Georgia, for 150 years. Under Will's leadership, they're improving it through regenerative farming. At White Oak Passes, we've determined that sustainable is not enough. It's got to be regenerative. Sustainable was fine before we degraded what we have. Uh, but we have degraded our lands to the point that just sustaining it is not okay. You know, we've got to regenerate it. For us, regenerative agriculture means that we leave the land and the system better off every year we operate it. And we use uh, many holistic practices in an effort to bring that life back to the land. When you next visit a Whole Foods, look for White Oak Pastures products. Your purchase supports responsible agriculture, just as Whole Foods Market supports this podcast. Eat real food from Whole Foods Market. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now... Back to our story. The Georgia Sweet Onion's popularity, known and beloved as a uniquely South Georgia product, introduced a different problem. Imposters. When Vidalia started, Vidalia Onion started, we didn't have no laws to govern it. That's farmer Delbert Bland again. And I will never forget, I got a private investigator to come down and sit in the woods to get the proof that we had people bringing onions from Texas over here, pouring them out of the Texas bag into the Vidalia bag, and selling them as Vidalias. 
In the beginning, there wasn't even consensus that Vidalias is what they should be called. Vidalia is a town in this part of Georgia. It's where the warehouse was for the onions. The farmers that lived in Glenville wanted to call it Glenville Sweet Onions. And the the people in Vidalia wanted to call it Vidalia Sweet Onions because that's where the stores were. There were a whole lot of names for basically the same thing. So a handful of the wealthier farmers decided to come together and get the state involved in trademarking a particular brand name. I went to Atlanta, me and three or four more farmers, and we got the legislators to agree to district off the Vidalia region. They went with the Vidalia name, and they got this state protection for it, allowing only onions grown in 20 counties in South Georgia to be called Vidalias. Once we got the Georgia law established, we quickly realized we didn't have no authority for somebody in another state. So then we had to get a federal marketing order. So we loaded up and went to Washington, D.C. And so they got it written into federal law. Vidalias were from South Georgia and South Georgia only. Was this the only place in either the United States or the world where those onions could be produced like that? Here's Tori Olson again. Not at all. I mean, there's plenty of places, whether it's in the Pacific Northwest or all across Central and South America, that had the same sorts of climate profiles to produce that type of onion. But that doesn't mean that South Georgia farmers aren't going to claim that this is the only place in the world where this is possible, because guess what? It it sells onions, right? And that's what they want to do. And here's where the ironies of that marketing start to get particularly intense. Remember, the Vidalia industry has this certain image of the onion that they're selling as evocative of an old-fashioned rural South. At the very moment, they're transforming that South into something that looks totally distinct from that romantic image, in that they're aggressively recruiting uh, immigrant labor. They're aggressively recruiting Latino labor, and particularly coming from Mexico and from Central America. Sweet onions are so tender, they have to be harvested by hand, which requires a lot of workers. For a long time, most of the farm labor in this part of Georgia was either black or white. But beginning in the 1970s in particular, you start to have a real influx of Spanish-speaking, Mexican-American, Mexican, Mexican, and Central American workers coming into the region, uh, coming into the southeast and into the Atlantic coast that really hadn't been as present uh, before. But those Latin American workers found in South Georgia, the labor conditions they faced, and the visa program that governs a lot of onion workers now, well, that's complicated enough to warrant its own story. But all that is just the start of the global connections the onion industry began developing as it grew. The thing was, there was such a demand now. Farmers wanted to be able to make Vidalias available year-round. Controlled atmosphere storage could only do so much. So if you put an onion in a warehouse in April and you checked in in mid-November to see if you can try to sell them in Thanksgiving, you'd be sorely disappointed because they would have been rotten and turned to mush and basically no one would pay any amount of money for that. Yeah, it's pretty yucky. (laughs) So they wanted to surpass the biological limitations of this onion. How do you do that? What magic trick could they come up with next? They couldn't find a way to do that actually in Georgia. So what do they decide to do? Well, they realized essentially that there's lots of other places around the world where you can grow sweet onions that have a similar soil and climate and precipitation profile to southeastern Georgia. It was actually the Ag Extension Service in combination with USAID, the federal agency in charge of international development, that helped figure out where in the world to turn. 
So the bridge from the United States, from Southeast Georgia to first Nicaragua and then Peru, is constructed not by free market entrepreneurs, but by government bureaucrats. First, they tried Nicaragua, but had issues with too much rain. So they started looking for another Latin American country. Delbert Bland has his own story of how he learned about this new frontier for growing onions. This guy from Peru, boy, went to school in UC Davis in California and graduated with an agriculture degree. He toured the U.S. on his way home, ended up here looking for things that they could grow in Peru. His name was Carlos. And so he rode around with my father for a couple of days in the truck because daddy wouldn't sit down and talk to nobody. He just stayed in his truck all day. And he took a liking to this little fella. And when he went to leave, he gave him a bag of onion seed that's about the size of a little mustard seed to put in his suitcase and carry home. So in Delbert's version of the story, Carlos went home and started playing around with growing the onions in Peru. And through working with him, we figured out that we could grow those onions down there and they would be just as sweet in the desert, basically, down there. And then it comes off at the opposite time of the year that the Vidalias do. So that's basically how we started, by accident. And that's how most things start, really. That's the legend, according to Delbert. The reality, well, it's a little less folksy charming. We learned it from Carlos himself. We tracked him down by phone in Peru. My last name is Lozada, L-O-Z-A-D-A. According to Carlos, by the time he visited South Georgia, he was already very familiar with sweet onions. Peru is traditionally a red onion-growing country. But in the early 1990s, they'd had a visit from a U.S. delegation aimed at introducing them to agricultural products they could sell in the United States. One such expert... Uh mentioned the possibility of growing sweet onions. Since we already had expertise growing onions, it seemed natural for us to give it a try with those sweet onions. His first visit to South Georgia came on the heels of some sweet onions he'd grown, which were being distributed from there. But he did meet and strike up a friendship with Raymond Bland, Delbert's father. And he was very kind and showed me the, the farm around Actually, I had a hard time understanding him. His, his way of speaking was very strange for me. <laughs> it was because of his strong Southern Georgia accent. But with the time, I got used to it. Raymond did give Carlos some seeds to try in Peru, a new variety, other than the kind that he was already growing. And the Blands went into business with Carlos, though they parted ways years ago. The friendship has endured, even after Raymond Bland's passing. And sweet onions are now a big business in Peru. Carlos says something like 8,000 acres are grown there now. Now, in our supermarket, you also find the sweet onions, the yellow sweet onions, that was, were not known before we started growing for, for the U.S. So they're now eating sweet onions in Peru. They've had to figure out some new dishes to use them in, though. It is not good to, to, to eat a, a ceviche with uh, yellow sweet onions. Back at Bland Farms, all these internationally grown onions still come through the packing houses in South Georgia. 
Delbert Bland and I are standing in the middle of his huge open-air warehouse. It's massive, and it's just one of five facilities Delbert has in the area. Forklifts carrying huge bins whiz by, and that loud noise? Those are several different roller coasters of onion machinery going all at once. So from August back around to February, we grow the onions in Peru, and we import them and pack them out of here. And then we ship from uh, Mexico starting in March, and then we go to Texas the first part of April, and then we come back to Georgia the latter part of April to start back with Vidalias, and that makes your cycle. Onions, thousands of onions. They bounce around and go up one conveyor belt and roll down another. Sorted and categorized, they end up in either bags, boxes, crates, or bins. Each is meant for a different destination, somewhere in North America. Delbert says his business is now worth just shy of $100 million. Here's the final irony, though. Remember all that effort farmers put into securing a law that said you could only call onions grown in Georgia Vidalias? Now that they've branched out into Peru and Mexico, they can't call their own onions Vidalias. You have to grow them here to call them a Vidalia. When we leave the Vidalia region and go to Peru, we actually grow the same onion seed in the same varieties in Peru, but we don't call them Vidalias. We just call them Peru sweet onions. Take a look in the grocery store right now, during the winter, for sweet onions. Tori Olson says you might see the familiar Bland Farms logo. They'll taste exactly the same, and you'll think they're exactly the same, but these are not Vidalia onions at all. These are Peruvian onions that just happen to be marketed and packaged by the same growers that are selling actual Vidalia onions. And it's, I mean, it's disingenuous in some ways, but it's also brilliant <laughs> in others. The Vidalia onion industry as a whole has been very skillful at navigating all of the twists and turns of technology, government wrangling, and global commerce. But does this globalized onion industry mean that they've let go of their southern down-home image? Not at all. They've doubled down on it, right? So all the same sorts of mythical stereotypes that were used to, to market this crop are only stronger today. You know, that it's this regional crop grown by small southern farmers and doing what they love in the soil that they call home. Well. You know, that's a good marketing message, but it's completely at odds with how this product is produced, whether in Georgia or in Peru, obviously. Tyler Pratt is Gravy's intern. He is a radio producer based in New Orleans. You can check out Tori Olson's paper, Peeling Back the Layers, Vidalia Onions, and the Making of a Global Agribusiness. That's on our website, southernfoodways.org gravy. Music for this episode was from Blue Dot Sessions, Jason Shaw, and Driftwood Soldier. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... Today, the Southern Foodways Alliance would like to introduce you to Food Corps, a national service program that connects children to healthy foods in schools. If you sign up for a year of paid public service with Food Corps, you'll be in schools teaching hands-on cooking, gardening, and nutrition lessons. You'll help make it so that all our nation's children, regardless of class, race, or geography, know what healthy food is, care where it comes from, and eat it every day. If you're interested in hands-on service with Food Corps, apply by March 15th, 
at foodcore, that's F-O-O-D-C-O-R-P-S dot org slash gravy. And also, the Southern Foodways Alliance has a pitch for you. If you're a content producer with a story to tell, send it to us. Gravy is looking for experienced producers to help grow this award-winning podcast. Application guidelines are online at southernfoodways.org. Be one of the first to apply, and the SFA will offer you a complimentary pass to Food Media South, a symposium on storytelling in the digital age. That's coming up in Birmingham on February 25th. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, Native American tribes take on the loss of land and food in coastal Louisiana. We're front lines, and it's going to spread. We can make a difference, and that's what it's all about. A better tomorrow, a better future for the next seven generations. We have to consider what we're leaving behind for the next seven generations. Crab stew and food sovereignty. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>